Are you a home educator starting Latin and feeling overwhelmed? Are you a Latin teacher looking for new inspiration and ideas? Or are you a casual learner beginning your journey into ancient languages? If so, this podcast is for you. In each episode, language teachers and experts come together to share their knowledge and experience with you in an accessible, fun, and inspirational format. We'll break it all down for you, from teaching tips, to choosing a curriculum, to staying motivated and keeping it fun. We hope this podcast helps you become the best undead language learner you can be, wherever you are on your journey. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast, Dead Languages for Living Brains, with your hosts, Kirsten Jaqua and Annie and- Phillips. Oh. Hello. This oh, is our this- second ever episode, with hopefully many more to come. And this is and- also our first podcast recorded remotely since uh, since the recording of the last episode. Kirsten has moved to Arizona. Yay. And eventually we'll figure out where we switch off. That's still a work in progress. Yeah, so how's the heat over there? <laughs> it's uh yeah, we're always roasting over here. You live most of your life indoors. And there's about five minutes of suffering before the car becomes bearable when you drive places. Ugh. But they tell me it cools down come August. So we're hanging on. Well, cools down somewhat. I mean, at this point, a hundred degrees is nice to me. So I can live in a hundred degrees. It's when it gets over a hundred and ten that it's awful. Fun times. All right, so we're just gonna dive right into our topic here, and uh, we we thought it would be a good idea to first get into uh, the pedagogical techniques that go into teaching ancient languages. Uh, So we're gonna talk about two of the main approaches to learning ancient languages, and. We'll explain what both of them are and um, kind of find the nice happy medium between the two. So uh, the learning of ancient languages does present some really interesting challenges. So when like when you sit down to learn a modern language, especially nowadays, you can find native speakers like you can connect with people online. You can find endless audio resources, social media, books, all kinds of stuff. It's like endless yeah. stuff. When I learned German at in college, we had something I think we called Kaffeeklatsch, if I remember correctly, and the German students across different levels would meet, and people who spoke German would also be coming to this gathering of German speakers, and you could just practice immersion with fluent speakers and speakers at varying levels of learning. And that's not something that's an option for us. And we also don't have any fluent speakers coming into our classes or native speakers coming into our classes the way that a Spanish class might at school. So as she said, it's the reason these two pedagogical techniques for learning ancient classical languages are very much unique to this field for that reason. So uh, ancient languages kind of require a very different style of teaching. So yeah, like Kirsten said, we don't have access to Greeks or Romans. We can't interview them. Uh, Ancient ones, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't have recordings. We don't have videos. We don't even know. We genuinely have no idea what their day-to-day conversations would have been like. We just have kind of educated guesses. Uh, what we do have are texts, and most of these texts are written in kind of the highest possible register of Latin and Greek. So it would, it would be a lot like trying to learn English as a non-native English speaker when you only have Shakespeare, just for an example. It would be and a, on top of that, you only have say six out of all the plays Shakespeare ever wrote, and then a few fragments of his sonnets. You don't even have the full tech corpus of all of his writings. Yeah, so then you're stuck kind of trying to reconstruct a lot of stuff based on that. So that's what classicists do with Latin and Greek. Um, And there's definitely, yeah, we don't know what colloquial language was like. We don't know what, you know, there's a lot of sort of basic things like that that we just don't know for sure. Um, 
and we don't know exactly how words were pronounced either so there's um and, and in the modern day there's a bit of a debate about there's, there's kind of two styles of latin pronunciation in particular the uh, ecclesiastical versus scholastic pronunciation so this is something that you might run into with um depending on the latin textbooks you use if you're using one that is aimed at um church latin uh, particularly in the roman catholic tradition um there's going to be pronunciation that's a lot closer to modern italian so they have like you know the ch sound so i don't know what's a good example of of that how people are pronouncing um santificator nomen tuum yeah so that ch sound like you know the the softer c's whereas you know the more academic pronunciation we don't have we we, oh, we don't have, yeah, yeah we, don't we don't pronounce we don't pre pronounce it uh, well i think the c's in the middle of words are the ones that get the ch sound in ecclesiastical obviously no one's going around saying chesar yeah no so there's yeah lots of things that we just kind of don't know and we have to work around that so those are some kind of important things to understand moving forward um, another thing i think is worth mentioning is that the learning of latin and greek to a lesser extent is kind of starting to come back it actually it did used to be taught in a lot of public schools until the 60s or the 70s and it kind of fell out of fashion um Oddly enough, my grandma, who's in her 80s, she told me a long time ago that she took Latin in high school when she was there in the 50s. Um, and that was in a relatively rural place. It wasn't in a city or anything. So I think it's kind of, um, it was a lot more common back then, but we're kind of starting to see it coming back, which is kind of, was really cool. Um, a lot of charter schools and private schools are offering it now. A lot of that's what I do. I teach at a charter school. Yeah, and your charter school is particularly kind of cool because they're really beefing up their uh, spoken Latin. Yep, where there's a large community of spoken Latin here in Arizona, which I didn't know about before my job search, and is pretty exciting. But one of the things that we discussed, since we just talked about it gaining ground and the potential reasons behind it, and Latin being as it is, this text, this this corpus of of language and texts that we don't have any current, you know, speakers, native speakers of it. One of the reasons that it's so interesting is that because it's kind of static, we have this huge amount of text that we can read if you learn Latin that didn't change a lot or that didn't change enough that it's unintelligible the way that English changed from you know, English, the English in Chaucer or the English in Beowulf is pretty much unintelligible to most modern English speakers, whereas we have everything in Latin from Plautus in the early Roman Republic all the way through the medieval era, and we can read all of it once you've learned Latin. So th there's so much that's accessible to you, and that's one of the reasons that it's gaining ground here is because of that huge corpus that you can read once you've learned it. There's a lot of stuff that still hasn't been translated to, especially when mm -hmm. you get into kind of medieval and Renaissance and even later Latin. There's a lot of stuff to read uh, that just, you know, nobody's really interacted with it. So there's actually, there is theoretically quite a lot out there. There's still a lot to do. And they're discovering new fragments of Latin and Greek now that they're doing some sorts of scans of the palimpsests to find oh, yeah. things that were written on them they found new sappho not so long ago but anyway that's a side note for one of the reasons there's still a lot that this field has to offer and how it's growing yeah definitely now it's been really encouraging seeing um, the spoken latin and i'll talk a little bit more about that and uh like things you can find on the internet for that if that's something you are interested in so um, a lot of people are kind of seeing the benefits of learning Latin, uh, and we talked about this in our, our first episode, uh, and we'll just- We won't of, rehash it too much. Yeah, we don't need to rehash it too much, maybe just give some highlights, but, uh, you know, it's a great way of learning how to learn a language. Um, you know, it's, it's really good for just reinforcing basic grammar concepts, basic reading skills, interpretive skills. Um, yeah, because you kind of have to approach it in a little bit more of an academic way than you can with, say, if you do like a, a Spanish or a French immersion, that tends to be a little bit less 
grammar intensive and we'll talk about that in a moment um but yes on another level learning the language of another culture which is something we touched on in our last episode as well is the only way to really gain access to their way of thinking and language level at its language learning at a core level has its own kind of logic and it manifests itself in the way you think about things this is something that we talked about I think both of us in the course of our studies, when you think yeah. about even just colors, mm-hmm. and we have questions about why why does Homer call the sea wine dark? What does that mean? How did they think about the color of the sea? It's There's a lot of questions about, yeah, even when you find the word for blue in Greek, then what kind of blue was that? There are different words for it. So even something as basic as color is thought about differently in different languages. So internalizing the logic of another language helps you understand it. A lot of things about the way you perceive the world. It helps you understand the literature you're reading. And it gives you insight into ideas, bigger ideas, and how they develop over time. Yeah, no, definitely. It kind of adds some interesting dimensions to the idea of like new ways to see the world. um, Because language can become like, um, I don't know. I'm not a computer person, but they kind of like the software in your mind that kind of helps you express or helps you interpret the world around you. So the more different kinds of software you can switch between and the more perspectives on the world you're going to have. So that's, that's, you know, one big thing that we really like. It's a bit like a discipline in a way it's disciplining your mind in ways to interpret meaning from the abstract things that we use to express meaning to each other, whether that's written or spoken language, it's abstract sounds or abstract shapes that have meaning to us. And we code them, basically. There are a lot of people who learn computer coding who it very much is a language, as those who learn it will tell you. So yeah. it's it's kind of a good way to discipline your mind and how to understand the meaning that you internalize from communication in both written and verbal forms. Yeah, no, definitely. So what we're going to do now at this point, we're going to talk about the two main approaches to how Latin and Greek are taught. And the first one's a grammar translation approach. So I'm going to let Kirsten do the do all the talking here. Well, we'll start with grammar translation and it really leads into and then circles back around from the second approach. So grammar translation, the name itself kind of explains what we're talking about to begin with. In effect, you learn the grammar behind the language, and then you use the learning of that grammar to help you translate. I think of it in a way as a backwards approach to learning language, where normally you learn language through some degree of immersion, as you would walk into your Spanish or French or German classroom and start with, uh, my name is, and speak in that language from day one. You really don't do that with the grammar translation approach. We use English linguistic terms to parse out what's happening in the language. So rather than learning the language through examples and demonstrations in its own tongue, you basically use linguistic terms and constructions to teach you how the language works from its basic building blocks. So we teach Latin learners from the early stage, we teach them verbs usually first, depends on the textbook, and then you would teach them What's a first person verb? What's a second person verb? What is a singular and plural verb? And then we teach them the conjugation of that verb. So amo, amasamat, amamusamati, samant. And then once you've learned that, you say, okay, amo is I love, amas is you love, and you go through the conjugation. And then you present students with the words in sentences in context. And you go backwards, you parse the words as you've learned how they work grammatically. And that usually means if you say, amo puelam, I love a girl, then you have to first parse out amo is a first person singular verb and it means love. So now we have I love. Puelam is an accusative noun. That means it's the direct object. That means the verb is acting on the direct object. I love the girl. So you basically decode each word and then you translate it into English. And so re- almost rather than think of thinking of it as this intuitive thing, you te- it has often the effect of making people think of Latin as a code that you have to parse out rather than a natural language that you use in a fluid way. 
Which is as a kind of funny tangential side note, I knew a lot of math majors in college that also took Latin classes and they really very much approached math and Latin in a very similar way that it could, you know, this this approach kind of taken to an extreme can really just become, you know, puzzle pieces or, you know, solving equations. Um, it's great for really building kind of your grammar foundations. So like, you know, everybody has, you know, verbs and verb functions and inflections and all these terms kind of on lock. Um, but it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that, you know, this was at one point a living language that people would think in and speak in. And that is where one often finds an issue with the grammar translation method. So it We'll start with the positives. As Annie said, you build a really strong foundation. You develop a unique understanding of language, and you actually learn a little bit of linguistics in the process. I find that people who learned Latin through the grammar translation method have basically the groundwork of an introductory linguistics course. They have an understanding of language and its building blocks that is exceptional. And having broken Latin down in this manner, also the grammar translation method has actually helped us to preserve Latin because we don't have native speakers of this language to explain to us when we get stuck. Having created this grammatical framework for ourselves to understand the language, it's something we can fall back on because there's no one who can explain to us the oddities. It's not perfect, but it has preserved the language in a very unique way. So we had to create this framework from which to understand the nuances of these languages, because that was all that we had left. It's the same reason that ancient Greek has accents now, and the ancient Greeks actually didn't use accents. The I think it was the Byzantines, do you remember, yeah. any, um, who, who created accents when they wrote the ancient Greek down in order to preserve elements of meaning that were not there in the written form, but were there in the spoken form. To which ensure that we didn't lose those nuances of the meaning. Right, which That's, is what happened to Hebrew as well with you know, exactly. the, the extra orthography that they had to insert to make sure people remembered. Because, you know, there are words that might look identical, except they're, you know, there are different words. But, you know, without prior knowledge of the, the vowel sounds that go in there, people might not distinguish between different words. Yes. So, yeah, and so a basically, lot of kind of artificial stuff. Yeah, these artificial sort of extra paths that we've taken with Latin and Greek and Hebrew, a lot of languages like this, I don't mean to knock them by any means because they have helped us to preserve these languages. And without the grammar translation method and the, the tools that we use to build this way of learning Latin, we probably would have lost a lot in the process of passing it down. Yeah, definitely. Now, the cons to the grammar translation method are somewhat self-evident, but I'll cover some of them. I frequently find that when teaching students via this method, they don't, as Annie said, view it like a language. They view it like an equation almost, like something they have to puzzle out and piece together. It's either a code or an equation or a puzzle of some sort. And they lose the sense of a language. They lose the fluidity. They lose the excitement of the meaning. And, and often I'll have students translate a sentence of Latin when they've learned it through the grammar translation method. And not they've translated something that makes no sense. They've generated an English sentence that doesn't make sense. And I ask them, what do you think this means? And they can't tell me. And they haven't really even tried to make it make logical sense in English because due to the way that they've learned it, sometimes they forget to attach actual real meaning to what they're reading. They forget to make it a true form of communication. So in effect, what I'm saying is this is a linguistic heavy way to learn a language. And if your target goal is to use that language and to understand it as a form of communication, you can get there with the grammar translation method, but it's a long road and it feels artificial. So you run the risk of learning a language as a code, basically. Yeah, and that sort of, you know, words versus meaning disconnect is, is a problem I've also run into, which I think is, this is probably a good point to talk about the, the, the other big approach, uh, which we're calling the comprehensible input approach. Um, 
which you know it's kind of a scary sounding term, but it it, it really is a very basic idea. Um, a language should be learned with as much meaningful input in that language that you can possibly get. Um, so, like when it mean when it, when it, if you're learning something like Spanish, for example, comprehensible input means reading very simple stories, listening to very simple things, and listening to stuff that is at your level, so that you can you know, comprehend everything. You don't need to comprehend a hundred percent, but you need to comprehend like. 80, 90% because that's how you build your fluencies and, you know, and build your comprehension level. So when you spend enough time kind of listening to things until you can fully comprehend them, you, know, you, can, you can keep building your vocabulary, building your grammar understanding. What this does or what it's supposed to do is it mimics the natural process of how we learn our first language as children. Uh, you know, we start out with a lot of listening, right, before we start understanding words, and then even before we start being able to use words ourselves, we do a lot of listening, and we're receiving a lot of language input, especially when adults are addressing us kind of on our level, using simple words and simple sentences, that's how we build our sort of natural fluency. Um, so that's, that's the very basic idea of it, and the idea you know, and the idea as it is termed comprehensible input comes from Dr. Stephen Krashen from uh, USC. Uh, he's written like, the two main books on the topic from my research here seem to be uh, principles and practice in second language acquisition. Um, and then this is a uh, university of Southern California. Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think he's still there. Um, not South Carolina, to be no, clear. No, yeah, USC is a University of Southern California. Um, yeah, so he's written a number of books on the topic, and um, I'll just quote him here just because I think it's kind of helpful to, to use his own words. So, uh, quote, language acquisition does not require extensive use of conscious grammatical rules and does not require tedious drill. Acquisition requires meaningful interaction in the target language, natural communication, in which speakers are concerned not with the form of their utterances, but with the messages they are conveying and understanding, end quote. So that's kind of the, the real heavy focus of the comprehensible input approach. And it's supposed to kind of help mitigate problems with the grammar translation approach where you can just sort of come up with sentences that make absolutely no sense. They can be technically translating each word as it occurs in a Latin sentence, but then when you string it all together, you just have no idea what the sentence is actually saying. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about what this looks like in a Latin classroom? Because as a language that lived in a different time period, that might beg questions. Right. No, yeah, that's where I'm going with this. Because, um, you know, this is obviously comprehensible input is really most useful in this day and age for current living languages. So you can find, you know, if you go on YouTube, you can find tons. And I was doing this with French. Um, there's a lot of uh, you know, slow-spoken French videos and things like that that are designed to help increase your comprehension. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I was doing that. It was really helpful. The problem is, you know, Latin is not a living language. So how, you know, is there a way to find that kind of happy medium between, yes, we need to learn the grammar, we need to understand the building blocks of these sentences, but we don't want to just, you know, string a bunch of English words together without actually arriving at meaning. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm going to defer to you as the more experienced Latin teacher on this. On this. By a small measure. We're both relatively new to, we've both done, I believe we've both done tutoring yes. in, in, I think, both languages, Latin and Greek. Yeah, and I have, I have a little bit of spoken Latin from college. We had a little spoken Latin club, uh, and we would meet at dinner in the cafeteria once a week and i'm being initiated into the spoken latin club out here we actually were playing spoken latin games on thursday sounds... uh, lots of um weird pendants if you can figure out what that is <laughs> it was fun and uh, i have a cana latina to attend later today but effectively there is some level of 
adapting the language to the modern world. But most frequently what this looks like in a Latin classroom is reading a story and discussing it together. It helps because we have a better understanding of what the students are understanding in the story. If we ask them questions about their life, they can say whatever they want, and you don't necessarily know if it's true or not because you don't have a shared something in the classroom. So we'll read a story together. For instance, Lingua Latina by Orberg has stories that you read about characters you get to know. And like every book, it has its flaws. But in this regard, it's great because you can read a story with the students together and, sit and ask them questions. So if there's a story where somebody is carrying a basket or a uh, bag, so Marcus Saku, Sakum Wehit, then you can ask the students who is carrying the bag, Quis Sakum Wehit, and the students can reply, Marcus Sakum Wehit. And this kind of call and response within the classroom where you give them a sentence that has the construction they need and they just need to fill in one word, helps them to get a natural sense for how to use the language and interact within the language, even though they may not be meeting it everywhere around them or have an opportunity to sit with other people and speak it as much as with a modern language. So that's just sort of a snapshot of what um, comprehensible input or CI as we usually refer to it looks like in practice. And I like how it has that sort of literary focal point. So, you know, a simple story, you know, something so everybody reads it and then responds to that. And, and, you know, in Latin, especially, it's very, very important that everybody is kind of using the constructions that are already offered in the story because it helps kind of build that, you know, this is how, because, you know, Latin works a little differently than, you know, a native English speaker might be used to like we have a little bit of an inflected language left over but not nearly to the extent that latin is so you really you know it's good to kind of force the students to think through um you know how to how to build the correct constructions pay attention to the endings of the words for uh, those who may not be familiar inflected languages change the endings of the words and within those endings are encoded meanings. So the sentence that I just spoke, Marcus Sakum Wehit, the endings of Marcus and Sakum indicate their roles within the sentence. In English, if I say Marcus is carrying a bag, we know who is being carried and who is carrying because of where the words are in the sentence. But in an inflected language, I can say Sakum Marcus Wehit, and we know that the bag, Sakum, is being carried because it ends with um, which means it is the object, the thing being acted upon. And Marcus, ending in us, has encoded into his meaning that he's the subject of the sentence. So each ending has meaning coded into it, and the root of the word remains the same, but the endings and parts of the word change to tell us what their roles are and also nuances about them, like what tense a verb is. And that's an inflected language. Right. And English has a little bit of this leftover, uh, yes. most noticeably in our verbs. So, for example, like I sing, you sing, he, she, or it sings, that third person sings, the S on the end, that's a little inflection. Um, but, you know, that's just a very little bit leftover. Um, but yeah, Latin does this far, far more. So you really have to get used to dealing with the endings and paying attention to the endings and a lot less attention to word order, at least. Yep. Word order does have some meaning in Latin, but it's much less important. Yeah, word order, discussing word order is one of those things that's like, you know, you kind of, once you've mastered some basic, you know, you have some basic mastery of Latin and you're analyzing rhetoric, then it becomes more important. Um, but, you know, initially not so much. So no. this is kind of, um, you know, that these are the two major approaches. So uh, at this point, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, what the hybrid approach would look like. Um, so I think where we're going to go from here is uh, we're going to do kind of like two little bits here. So one is kind of aimed at, let's say you're a newer Latin teacher in a school. So you have a Latin classroom to run and you are implementing some of these ideas in your classroom. What is that going to look like? So we'll address that first. And then the second point we'll address a little bit more at, you know, what if you're just a homeschool parent at home 
and you don't know any Latin, but you want to do Latin with, with your kids, I've had a lot of people approach me with this question. Um, you know, what are some you know, concrete things you can do uh, and you know, places to look um, for that? So I'm gonna let Kirsten address the first, uh, the first question there. So for the classroom, yes, and both of us to some degree have experience in both of these areas. We were homeschooled Latin learners, the both of us. Yeah. So what, as we kind of discussed, what works best for a Latin classroom is probably a hybrid approach that takes hopefully the best of both worlds in these two approaches. Because a fully comprehensible input Latin classroom runs the risk of not building a very strong foundation because you can't expect students to interact or immerse themselves in the language outside the classroom. Granted, you can't necessarily expect that for students of a modern language either, but this, this problem is intensified with Latin and ancient Greek. So in the having some grammar foundation helps to create something to fall back on when you are lacking that immersion aspect. It's not really available to your student. So from the grammar translation side, you get a heightened emphasis on grammar and understanding the mechanics of the language, which is very beneficial to students just from a discipline of the mind standpoint. They develop categories for understanding language and how it works, which is a great thing to know in many contexts. And eventually, they will need to learn how to parse sentences and understand what's going on with the grammar if they advance into further and further levels of Latin anyways. And it also helps them tackle the mechanics of any other languages they may want to learn. So there's a lot of useful concepts that you can teach students to approach languages intelligently through this method of learning. From the comprehensible ins input side, you get an emphasis on listening and reading to simple stories. And in my opinion, it also helps to heighten a sense of excitement and fun in a classroom, comprehensible input usually in the classroom includes, like I said, call and response type stuff. And you learn to talk about things within your classroom in the language. It gives you a more immersive feel. It brings the language to life in a whole new way. And reading a lot of the Latin texts, it takes you a long time to get there with the grammar translation method. So allowing a comprehensible input element to your classroom helps the students to feel a sense of accomplishment and excitement about the language they're learning from a much earlier stage. And as I said, it creates what we talk about here on the podcast, the undead language. It is, as we said, no longer a quote unquote living language, but we can bring it to life in our classrooms for our students in a way that makes it more fun. So that's I'm very excited about comprehensible input in case you can't tell, but I think that, I think they work hand in hand beautifully if done well. I think they, they really belong together in an interwoven and hybrid sense. And you can start with the stories to build up towards more and more complex things. And it doesn't take long before you can start to give students snippets of real quote unquote Latin texts. And who's to say that what you're reading in the simple stories is not real anyways. So you can build up, I think, in a more exciting way with this hybrid approach. Yeah, and it's really fun watching the students, that sort of moment when they realize, oh, I can understand this. It's like, in, even with students that are maybe, you know, grew up bilingual, have had some experience, you know, with students that speak English, but then they speak another language at home. So they do have that sort of, you know, multilingual, but then even even when you're still learning a new language and you kind of have that moment of dawning comprehension is really fun to watch. Uh, and here's, here's my last plug for comprehensible input. Um, since Annie brought this up, and this is a great point to think about, I myself am a bilingual speaker. I am fluent in both Danish and English. And as someone who is bilingual, I can also attest to the fact that creating a classroom where you try to work as much as possible in the target language, even for Latin, it does wonders for how well students can adapt. And this is why anyone who speaks two languages can tell you that you have to code switch when you move from one to the other. If I run into someone on the street who's speaking Danish, my second language, I have to code switch to understand them. And as soon as I code switch to English, if somebody to Danish, if someone is speaking to me in English, 
next to me, I will not actually internalize what they are saying because my brain is trying to think in Danish now. And I'm trying to understand what someone's saying in Danish. And I have to switch back to English. And the truth is that when you do purely grammar translation, you're asking students to hop back and forth in a very awkward way. Whereas if you try to make your classroom as much as possible working in the target language, it helps the students to actually think in a way that Latin thinks. It helps them to focus in a way, because if you are trying to use both languages at the same time in your classroom, you're constantly going to hit barriers. Code switching is tough. Yeah. Anyway, that's my final plug. Yeah, well, in case you weren't convinced about the... Uh... <laughs> Inherent superiority. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. No, no, it's, no I'm, I'm joking. You can't, you can't exclusively operate. No, no. AI, yeah. But it's very exciting. And well, I'm going to continue to be very excited. I think the challenge is fun, though, of trying to and, and what cracks me up the most about comprehensible input. So all those books were written in the 80s and the 90s at kind of the height of um, kind of terrible language instruction <laughs> in schools where it was very much like we're going to teach French and Spanish in the most sort of grammar translation-y possible way and then everybody was kind of wondering well why is it that I took four years of high school Spanish and I can't remember a single thing like that's a thing <laughs> I've heard so many times I was like well the whole point of comprehensible input is it is very just basic like well, we all learn language this certain way. Why don't we teach languages the same way that we learn our first language? Like, you know, why do we need to do some very artificial different kind of thing? Um, and so, yeah, it's it cracks me up a little bit because it's like it's it's on the one hand, it's like, yes, this just makes a lot of intuitive sense. But we also kind of needed to be reminded that, you know, this is just how language works and we shouldn't be trying to just do, you know, grammar translation Spanish and expect that to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's wild. The history of language learning is interesting in many ways. Yeah. But well, that's our hybrid learning. And now we do want to address, it's a very different situation. If you're a parent teaching yes. kids at home, if you're not in a dedicated classroom with a team of other teachers or a school administration behind you, what does it look like to teach Latin? Yeah, so and I, I've got a, a few points here and again, feel free to interject wherever you think is necessary. Um, you know, you know, let's say you have, you know, very limited experience with Latin or, you know, none at all. Uh, I think probably the best advice is, you know, the first thing is pick your curriculum and stick with it. And do not fear the curriculum episode is coming. That's going to be our next, the next topic that we tackle. We're going to talk about all many, many curricula. There's so many curricula. So many. And some are better than others. So we'll kind of talk about that. Um, but, you know, for example, if you have very young kids and you want to do Latin, um, one really great place to start is Minimus Mouse. Uh, and it has a lot of online resources. Like it has a textbook. You can buy a textbook and, you know, different resources along with that. But it has lots of you know, like freebies on their website, and they have links to other cool websites as well. That's a great place to start for little kids. Um, Wheelox is a great place to start if your kids are maybe a little older, like middle school onwards. Um, and there are a lot of options, and there really aren't very many that I would say are just outright bad. <laughs> most of what you're going to find is going to work just fine so you just pick one and stick with it for the sake consistency, of consistency yes that is so key because a curriculum will build up vocabulary if you try to hop into the middle of another curriculum you're going to have a lot of vocabulary that your student your kid doesn't know it will be confusing something that is like i something that you kind of run into in homeschool circles a lot with uh like math is actually a big problem where people will get halfway through a math curriculum and decide this really isn't working for me. And then you have to jump into another math curriculum. And it's like, there are some concepts that just inevitably get you know, left behind while you're kind of making a switch between the two. So yeah, it's important to be consistent. And then my other point here, um, is you know learn it alongside your kids and don't feel like you have to be you know ahead um you know and give yourself some grace to take your time 
learn it with your kids, um, you know, treat it like it's kind of a, it's a project for all of you. And, you know, and consistently doing that, you know, whatever your school schedule is, you know, you do four or five days a week or whatever, you know, even if you're only doing a few minutes a day, that's fine. Um, you know, and remember when you make mistakes, there's a couple things that hopefully should be comforting to you in that regard. One is that making mistakes and admitting them to your student, whether you're a parent or a teacher, is not a bad thing. Students oh. need to know that making mistakes is part of the process of learning. And exploring that mistake together with the student or your kid, your student, actually can be a really good way for them to remember things. Some of the mistakes that I made in learning Latin that I remember most keenly are the ones where a teacher sat with me and figured out what exactly had gone wrong. Yeah. Sometimes neither of us knew. And I have a particularly keen memory of a teacher who made me dig through the dictionary and talk about roots. And I've never forgotten that word ever, ever again. And I never will. So exploring a mistake together is actually a really great exercise. The other point to go with this, if you're feeling daunted by the task of learning this, is that it's language is imperfect. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when something doesn't make sense to you, it's okay to be a little puzzled by it and to sit with that confusion because we are all communicating imperfectly. And so did the ancient Romans and Greeks. And sometimes there are flaws in the way something is written or communicated. And that's just part of life and part of communicating with people and using language. This is true. And also going kind of going back to the, you know, if you make a mistake, you know, admitting it or feeling like, oh, okay, we messed up. Let's figure out why. It can also be really good for building trust between teacher yes. and student. A hundred percent. Because, you know, the, the teachers that I've had in the past that didn't ever admit to being wrong, you, you hmm. come to a place where you just feel like, well, if that was wrong, then other things they say can be wrong. And it just makes them a whole lot less effective as a teacher. And I think that applies for you know the homeschool as well as you really want to have that kind of trust and, and model that you know, well, okay, it's okay to make mistakes. And now we're going to go and figure out what the problem was and we're going to figure it out together. Um, so I think that's a really important kind of building block there. I mean, I've, and I've noticed even as a TA of a myth class at <laughs> UCSB, I've, I've been very open with my, with students and college students about when I don't know something or when I misspoke or something and then I will correct myself like I, I might send them an email later saying you know um but what that actually does like that that's actually helped me build relationships with my students um mm -hmm. just because I am willing to do that so it does and it makes it teaches students which is just generally a good thing to learn in life that it's okay to admit when you don't know something Yep. That you as a teacher, as a parent, whoever you are in their life, as an adult in their life, are a person who can accept that you make mistakes, that you are still learning and growing as a Latinist, as an adult, as a person. It's a good thing to teach them and show them your own humility and your own ability to adapt and change and admit flaws. Which is, you know, a surprisingly rare thing <laughs> Yeah, I've I always loved those teachers, but I also one thing that I've done in my classes, whether it was teaching myth, as I also did that at UCSB or Latin or any other subject, when students asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to, I would let them know that I wasn't sure, and then I would write it down. I always kept a book or some piece of paper on hand when I taught. And I would, as Annie said, either email the student later, or I would bring it to the next class and say, remember when you asked about this? Here's what I looked up and learned about it. Now we can discuss this together. And the students, again, as Annie said, it builds trust with them because they recognize that not only are you a person who will admit when you don't know something, but you will have follow through. And I can't think of many more important things with students than follow through. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, and then kind of 
all this conversation about mistakes bleeding into. Well, just because it feels messy doesn't mean it's not working, which, yeah, this is, this is, a, this is huge because a lot of us really want to feel like we have this nice little compartmentalized system that's, you know, working beautifully and we want to see results and everything has to be, you know, happening on time. And that's just not how it works. That's never how it works. And you kind of tend to not really see the full results until kind of, it, it takes a while. And when you do start seeing results, that makes it feel very satisfying. But then you're going to look back on the process and think, wow, that was messy. Oh, yeah. That's okay. You know, and there's sometimes, yeah, it takes time. And it's so with Latin students, certainly, I'm sure you've experienced this too in tutoring. There's a period of time where they are just some, not all, some students pick up like right away. Yeah. But there's a period of time for some where they just battle with the language. They're trying really hard. They're doing their best. And then sometimes there's just a moment where it clicks. Yeah. And then all that work, all the patience that you've hopefully bestowed upon your student and yourself in the process will pay off. Yeah. Because when I was in, yeah, I did undergrad tutoring and I I started doing that, I think my sophomore year, because I was able to jump into the the higher level classes. But kind of what I seem to see most with uh, other students is it took like a good semester and a half before they really, before that sort of moment of epiphany um, so you just like, yeah, it takes sometimes it just, yeah, it takes like, you know, a semester and a half, like six to eight months before it really sinks in. And this is, you know, college students. Um, so, you know, and it'll vary for different people, but, you know, oh, yes. okay. And Patience. there's also no shame in outsourcing if you really, you know, want to, if you are able to get outside help, which, you know, it's not hard to find outside tutoring. I actually offer that, um, on my website. Um, I've been doing uh, private tutoring online via Zoom since 2020. Um, we've actually, you know, there's, there's, we found a system that works really well, actually, via Zoom and Google Docs. Um, so, you know, like you can find tutors that do that and you know, are very happy to do that. And that, that can be a really great option, too, if you feel like you're just overwhelmed. Um, so, you know, no shame in that. So, Yeah. And um, a lot of helpful links I will put in the kind of the transcript or the the show notes, whatever I end up posting after this. Um, so yeah, that that is our that is our discussion for today. So yeah, any final final words words of wisdom? Uh, one hopes and dreams of having words of wisdom to share <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I I, I share information right now and i hope that one day it will coalesce into some little shred of wisdom uh we we've both you know done tutoring i've done some teaching it's a lot of trial and error and that's okay too as two people who came out of two very different homeschooling situations and where I will I will have to admit in this moment that we did not pick a curriculum and stick to it and it was definitely chaotic and messy and I was confused when I got to college but a, a lot of it still stuck and I still did pretty well once I I got my feet on the ground so again like she said it's okay if it's messy do your best to be consistent and above all be patient with yourself and your students. Yes, no, definitely. I mean, yeah, if it's any, I also did not have a, anything remotely resembling a consistent because we had four or five different textbooks and I just kind of lit it around between all of the different ones. And then finally I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try and read Cicero. Um, <laughs> I kind of reverse engineered a lot of it too, which you know, you can kind of debate. I can, I don't know how, you know, effective or not effective that was. Cause I just, I'm the kind of person that when I decide to do something, I just kind of like push through it no matter what, <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, it, it worked for me, but it doesn't necessarily have to work for other people. <laughs> so yeah, everybody, is- everybody's path to success or whatever level they want to reach of 
capability in Latin is going to look different. Yeah, and people there are it is very possible to have different goals with Latin. Like there are people that want to read very specific things, like scholastic Latin, which is very much its own thing. <laughs> or people that only want to read, you know, the Aeneid, for example, or you know, there's there's you know lots of different angles that people will take. Um, so yeah, it, it's all gonna be messy and it's that's okay. So I think But um, yes, we are both homeschool alums and now university okay. alums so we, we 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 did okay <laughs> and so did our mothers <laughs> definitely no no shade on our parents our moms who did their best like you know yes there was a lot of was... a lot of a lot of patience and a lot of different methods were tried yep and yes so we learned a lot of eclectic and interesting things about language and here we still are yep all right so i think we do welcome questions i think that we have an email up on the website if people would like to talk about any of this further with either of us yes. we are happy to take questions and happy to share what we know and wonder if people will gain some wisdom from it yes. if not knowledge Yep, hopefully. All right. And curriculums. Yeah, stay next tuned. episode. Stay tuned for many, many, many curricula. Which hopefully won't be an impossibly boring lesson because I can, you know, talking about all the different curricula could, it could be a very dry topic. So we will try to not let it get too. We dry. can start by talking about some of our, the curricula we have our own experiences with yeah. and go from there, I think. Yep. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe for future episodes. For more information, you can visit our website, museoneducation.com. That's spelled M-U-S-E-I-O-N, education.com. Also linked in the show notes. We wish you a happy language learning journey.